0: May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. We're releasing this as a bonus special episode to address new legislation that was introduced in Congress on October 16. The legislation is entitled A Bill to Prohibit Certain Non-Compete Agreements and for Other Purposes. And it's also been called the Workforce Mobility Act. This is a bill introduced as a purportedly bipartisan effort of Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut and Senator Todd Young of Indiana. And to talk about it and the implications, I'm joined by David Kleinman, a partner of mine and a prominent member of our restrictive covenant practice group.
1: Thank you for the kind, undeserved words
0: I didn't say anything that kind, but if I did, they would be deserved. So the first question for this discussion is a simple one, I guess. What is
1: a non-compete? In the employment context, a non-compete is a specific contractual provision which forbids an employee from going and working for a competitive employer in a specific area.
0: And it precludes any work as a general matter, in that area.
1: It could preclude any work for that employer. It could prohibit competitive work for that employer in the same role or with the same result.
0: Is it synonymous with the term restrictive covenant?
1: If you're using it poorly, yes. But in reality, a restrictive covenant refers to the class of restrictions and includes three main areas. Non-compete provisions, which we've just described, client-based restrictive covenants, your Non solicit, non accept, non service provision, which says you will not solicit, accept, or service clients, customers, referral sources, partners, these sorts of relationships. And your third category is your non poach, non hire, non raid provision that says you cannot attempt to hire the former employees you worked with to leave your former employer and join you at a new employer. I open up the newspapers, and it seems
0: like every six months or so, There's some piece in the New York Times about restrictive covenants and how they're destroying civilization as we know it. And so I think the second question is, are they bad?
1: Well, I think you're dating yourself by saying you're physically opening the New York Times. (laughs) Fair enough. The rest of us who are seeing it online, and it's the New York Times, and there's a, a specific opinion reporter for the Washington Post who writes a bunch of these on an individual basis, there is inequity. There are these specific examples of there was a janitorial case in Massachusetts where somebody tried to enforce a non-compete. We all agree that that is inappropriate. There were sandwich workers at Jimmy John's that had non-compete agreements. They were making sandwiches for $15 or less an hour, shouldn't have restrictive covenants. There are limited ills in the system, misapplication, But generally, they're good. In large part, if you show up in front of a judge and try to restrain a low hourly worker from competing and they haven't stolen a bunch of files, you are going to get laughed out of the courtroom.
0: Right. Let's talk about that. Let's go right to that. There's this notion that these non-competes are freely enforceable in the courts, and anybody who signs one is bound by them. I think that's part of the reaction by people who want to get rid of them or restrict them. But that's not true in our experience, right, that any of these get enforced.
1: No, it isn't true. And again, in certain states, Florida, which has a statutory scheme, Georgia, which has a statutory scheme, there's a higher likelihood that they will be enforced. But there's a significant financial outlay to bring one of these cases. And so you're not seeing in any volume Companies going against low wage workers because they don't want their machinist to work at the machinist next door. You're just not seeing it. I mean, we always spoke about in New York there being an unwritten six figure exception to these cases where, unless you were making over $100,000 a year, you couldn't bring a non compete case in New York. You just couldn't do it because the judge would look at you and say, How much are they making? And if it wasn't $100,000, you were not going to get injunctive relief. Right.
0: And in contrast, one rule of thumb I've always had is that if the employee makes more than the judge does on an annual basis, the judge is going to be less sympathetic to the plight of the employee who's agreed to a
1: non-compete. Let's
0: stay with New York as an example. To enforce a restrictive covenant in New York, you need to show a couple of things, right?
1: Right. So generally, you need to demonstrate what's known as a legitimate protectable interest, to enforce a non-compete specifically, there are only two that you can sh- you can show. It's if the employee has trade secrets, which usually means they've taken trade secrets physically, or they have trade secrets in their mind, or if the employee is unique or extraordinary. And because of the way the law developed in New York, unique and extraordinary really means you're DiMaggio, or you are very, very... Important. You're ac C-suite or founder or very very specific.
0: DiMaggio being Joe DiMaggio, I, I gather. Yes. Not Lou DiMaggio.
1: You're opening up your physical papers. I figured you'd get the reference.
0: <laughs> I got it. I was helping. I was helping non-Yankee fans might not remember
1: Joe DiMaggio. He had a brother who played center field for the, for the Red Sox. Not, not that DiMaggio. He was not unique or extraordinary.
0: And in addition to showing a protectable interest, you have to show that the non-compete provision is reasonably tailored to address that interest.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's very important. But in order to even get out of the starting gate, you need to show that there's a legitimate protectable interest. So all the salespeople, all the service people – who don't really get trade secrets or aren't unique or extraordinary because you're employing lots of them. You can't enforce a non-compete against these people. It doesn't matter if the covenant itself would be reasonable when you looked at it. You're just not allowed to do it. And so there's a tremendous volume of employees that may have non-compete agreements or may not, but a non-compete is simply not applicable to them. Right.
0: And I think one of the issues is not the state of the law but the fact that low-level employees may not have the ability to challenge in court the restrictive covenant they're trying to get out from under.
1: There are certainly employees who don't have the wherewithal to have a lawyer look at their agreement and tell them that it's enforceable or not. And there are certainly employers who are not Educated or have bad legal counsel who look at an agreement and say, oh, you have a non-compete and you're not allowed to work here. Or what I heard today was an employee who wanted a new job and the new potential employer said, you have a non-compete, I can't hire you, that's tortious interference with your contract, which of course in New York is not the case if it's an at-will employee. And so there is an informational gap there. The question is, it's a finishing nail that needs to be put into wood why do you have a sledgehammer?
0: Well, I was going beyond the informational gap. I was even assuming that the low-wage employee knows that the non-compete is unenforceable, probably not consistent with applicable law. They don't have the money to start a lawsuit.
1: They don't have the money to be in a lawsuit,
0: right? Correct. So they're not able to challenge it the same way as a more as a a more highly compensated person. On the flip side, we talk about somebody who works at Jimmy John's, someone who makes sub-sandwiches is different than someone who makes submarines and has highly technical knowledge about the product that they're developing and wants to go to a competitor and is highly compensated. And those have totally different aspects and considerations. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, and so somebody who's operating at a high level with trade secrets – that might be a very good reason to have a non-compete to protect them from going to a competitor.
1: Absolutely. If they don't have client relationships and you're not worried simply about them physically taking your information but utilizing their knowledge of what your business is going to be doing, the non-compete is the only option.
0: Some would argue that, no, we have a confidentiality agreement and those people are restricted by the confidentiality agreement. They're restricted by relatively new federal legislation in the Defend Trade Secrets Act, those people are prohibited from use, from taking or conveying the trade secrets to anybody new. You don't need a non-compete. How would you answer that?
1: I'd say there's a whole body of law in New York under the Inevitable Disclosure Doctrine which explains that sometimes you have information in your head and you can't help but use it. So if I am the chief of sales of an organization that sells widgets and I'm going – from employer X to employer X's chief competitor, and I know what my old employer was going to be doing in terms of sales in the Northeast and the Southwest, and it's my job to create the same strategy, I can, I'm going to create that strategy with the same information that I had in my old employer. And the only way you can stop me from using that information, in my head, not sharing it with anyone, not disclosing it, but just using it is with a non-compete. And there are certain people... That you, you want them to sit on the sidelines until the information gets stale. These are your you know, traders, your C-suite executives, the, the sort of people that have been highly compensated for a period of time, have trade secrets in their head, are unique and extraordinary, and you you need them. You truly need them to sit down for a while.
0: Now we have let's talk a little bit about this new bill. It's not it's not entirely a new bill, but how it came about. There have been efforts in states, and at the federal level to restrict or eliminate non-competes in recent years.
1: Yes. And I would say, except for this most recent 2019 bill, they were all logical and, on the state level, very effective.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about what's happened on the state level.
1: On the state level, in 2017, California passed a law saying that you could only apply California law to its own citizens, which doesn't really sound like it is relevant here, but California forbids restrictive covenants. And what California was doing is saying, look, you're not allowed to enforce a restrictive covenant against a California employee, and you can't hire a California employee and say Idaho law applies or New York law applies and get around our scheme. And that was California sort of uh, firming up that there would be no restrictive covenants in California.
0: There's also been new legislation in a number of other states Hawaii, I think, pretty much banned non-competes.
1: Oklahoma has banned non-competes as well. I think North Dakota has banned non-competes. The the 2018 and forward uh, legislation has been in Massachusetts, Maryland, New Hampshire, Maine, and the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, and Washington, and then as well, Rhode Island.
0: Oregon and Utah limited the duration of non-competes, Right. Okay. So now let's talk about the federal efforts. In 2015, there was a bill introduced by Senator Murphy and then Senator Franken entitled the Mobility and Opportunity for Vulnerable Employees Act or the MOVE Act. And as I understand it, the import of that proposal was to ban non-competes for any employees earning less than $15 an hour. That's right. And that bill went nowhere.
1: It went to the White House and lit a fire in their minds. That's where it went. Legislatively, it went nowhere. But what it did, it it caused the White House to publish a, quote, call to action and a policymaker's guide to state policies in which they encouraged state legislatures to take the information and pass legislation. They were concerned with low-earning workers, just like the 2015 bill. They were worried about its impact on low-earning workers, and they wanted hypothetically to promote something called a red pencil doctrine as opposed to a blue pencil doctrine. The blue pencil doctrine is, well, if your covenant is a little over broad, we will inequity partially enforce it, so something will be enforceable. They wanted a red pencil doctrine, which is if you draw this covenant too broad and it's unfair and um, and it can't be enforced in total, it will not be enforced at all. The idea being that it would incentivize employers to create fair agreements. So this was all an effort to impact people making less than $30,000 a year, right?
0: Flash forward to 2018, where Senator Murphy, along with Senators Warren and Wyden from Oregon, introduced the Workforce Mobility Act in Congress, which is a flat-out ban on non-competes.
1: Right, which is not exactly the right size hammer to use on the finishing nail, but it's not as bad as 2019. And again, this is in the context of multiple states passing covenant legislation, which is banning non-competes for people making less than fill in the blank. So for example, in Washington, you can't have a non-compete if an employee earns less than $100,000. For Oregon, it's The salary level is a family of four, which is in the mid-60s. In Maine, the salary level is 400% of the federal poverty level, which takes you to $48,000 a year. Um, In New Hampshire, it's 200% of the federal minimum hourly wage, which is almost exactly like the 2018 Murphy Bill. And in Massachusetts, you have to be exempt. Uh, which means that you're making a certain weekly amount or $100,000 a year to be classified as highly compensated. And there's a duties portion, but they don't want hourly workers, they don't want low-wage workers to be restricted by non-competes. None of the state laws impact the enforcement of client-based restrictions. You're non-solicit, you're non-accept, non-service provisions for clients, referral sources, partners, Whoever. None of them impact the prohibition on the poaching of former employees to a new employer. This is pure non compete legislation only.
0: All right. So let's talk about the current bill introduced by Senators Murphy and Young on October 16th. This is back to a very broad ban of non compete agreements. Let me read a little bit of the language from the prohibition section except as provided in subsection B, which mostly concerns sale of a business, no person shall enter into, enforce, or threaten to enforce a non-compete agreement with any individual who performs work for the person and who in any work week is engaged in commerce or in the production of goods for commerce. So that's a very broad ban. And then you've got to flip some pages, which I'm doing now, to get to the definition of a non-compete. So, David, tell us how it defines what a non-compete agreement is.
1: In contrast to 2018, in which they defined a covenant not to compete as any work for another employer for a specific period of time, any work in a specified geographic area, or any work for another employer that is similar to such employees' work for the employer, right? This is, that's a definition that is uh, based in the relationship between employer and employee. In 2019, it says any work for another person for a specified period of time, any work in a specified geographical area, any work for another person that is similar to such individual's work for the person that is a party to such agreement. And what's troubling here is that when you change out person for employer, right? now it doesn't mean only non-competes. Now it means all restrictive covenants.
0: So what you're saying is you read this bill... As banning non-competes, but also banning non-solicitation provisions.
1: Absolutely. And the argument here that wages will be raised by knocking out all non-competes ignores that this is a very large country and that people have relationships to one another. So, for example, if I have a million dollars of accounting business or consulting business or financial services business and there's one person who – brings in the business. There's probably two or three other people who service the business or work at the company only because of that business. And so if you allow people to leave and take business, what you're basically doing is saying, all right, you you had a million dollars in business. You didn't like you were making $400,000 a year. You want to go someplace else and make $425,000 a year. We support that but your two servicing employees are going to get fired because we no longer have the business for them to work on, and the secretary or the receptionist who worked out front has to lose her job because we can no longer afford her. And these people who you know, may not have the same ability to get the same job at the same level as the individual with the actual business are going to be harmed at a rate that exceeds whatever benefit is given to this high-earning uh, worker. And and that's the problem here.
0: Right. Companies argue that protecting their trade secrets and protecting their customer relationships actually inure to the benefit of the company as a whole and to all of their other employees and people who make money from that customer. And this bill seems to forget about those people.
1: This bill would be so destructive to companies, it would be unbelievable. They don't allow you to have non-competes and I would argue all restrictive covenants. There's a carve out for sale agreements, but the carve out only lasts for a year. Sale of
0: a business, meaning that if you sell a business to somebody, you can still include a restrictive covenant that precludes the seller from essentially opening the same business across the street a week later.
1: But only for a year.
0: Which is very limited because in the sale of a business context the courts traditionally enforce multi-year restrictive covenants. It's just a bargain between a seller and a buyer. The seller is saying, one of the things I'm selling to you is that I'm not going to compete with this business.
1: There's a measuring problem, which is when they value the business, they value it based upon a multiple-year look at the revenue they expect post-sale. Some businesses, it's seven years. Some businesses, it's 10 years. Some businesses, it's five years. If you say you can only get a restrictive covenant post-sale agreement for one year, all of a sudden your valuations get chopped significantly because you can't stop the person from getting the business again.
0: And more fundamentally, the act as written overshoots because it doesn't distinguish between the kind of employees we're talking about, either by function or by salary. And it doesn't distinguish between the kind of restrictive covenants we're talking about. So it seems to lump in non-solicitation restrictions with broader non-competes in a way that might not be optimal.
1: Right. It's like saying you're having soup and steak and I'm going to put the steak in the soup. It doesn't make any sense. You can't just lump them together. Okay. There's also another problem. Yeah. So there's another carve out, which is that in the case of partnership agreements – you can't have restrictive covenants. Now, logically, they don't explain why there's this giant hole for partnership agreements in, in the Act. But the net effect here is that all these businesses that used to employ individuals and for which the company paid the employer portion of FICA and for which the employer paid workers' comp and unemployment insurance, There's going to be a huge incentive to convert all of these employees into partners. And then those individuals are now going to be responsible for their own employer portion of FICA. There's not going to be unemployment or workers' comp insurance on these individuals. And so state coffers are going to run dry because they've forced everybody to make so many employees partners to get around the ridiculous prohibitions in this act.
0: In other words, there are broader economic impacts that ought to be considered instead of the simple knee-jerk reaction that non-competes somehow impede growth in the economy. Right. Your mentioning of FICA and employee classification issues uh, reminds me to ask you to tell us a little bit about your practice, what it is you do uh, at our firm.
1: So I co-chair the firm's restrictive covenant practice, where I work with uh, very fine attorneys such as yourself on restrictive covenant matters, including for employers, professionals in transition, companies who are looking to hire employees who have restrictive covenants and want to understand how to navigate it and where their pressure points are. I also handle a wide variety of other employment matters, general employment matters, discrimination, harassment, counseling, wage and hour matters, and you know general employment advice.
0: Great. We're going to do now what we call our closing argument, where we try to sum up a a takeaway from today's discussion. And for a topic for the closing argument, uh, I want to propose this. Can we fix this, Bill? Absolutely. How would you go about – fixing it.
1: So you need to prohibit restrictive covenants such as non-competes, non-competes only for employees who are not making whatever the highly compensated classification rate is in any given year. So it was $100,000. It is $100,000. It's going to go up to $107,000 in the very near future. That to me seems like the right level to prohibit non-competes. If you're not making over $107,000, you should not be prohibited from going and working for a competitor. I'm fine with that. That covers ninety more than ninety percent of the employees in the United States.
0: And then the more highly compensated people who are entering into a non-compete as part of their deal to work at that level of compensation, we can enforce those.
1: I would say yes. You could have an interim step where, if you're making between $100,000 and 250 thousand dollars a year, such as Massachusetts does at any income level you have to pay the employee 50% of their salary for the past 12 months. It's effectively a 50% garden leave provision.
0: And I think that you could codify a lot of these things that exist in New York law. You can codify that garden leave is viable – You can codify existing limitations on restrictive covenants, that they have to have a protectable interest, that they have to be limited in geographic and temporal duration. You could set, you know, some specific time limit. You could put any of that in a bill and pass it.
1: I don't think you want to upend every state's laws by doing it differently. I think what you want to say is you can't have a non-compete over X And between zero and, let's say, $50,000 or $75,000 a year, you can't have any restrictive covenant. But once you make $50,000 a year, you can have a non-solicit, non-accept, non-service provision for clients. And in that way, you're not telling somebody they can't get a job. You're saying when you get that job, you can't immediately solicit the clients you were dealing with for your former employer. And so that you would have non solicited, non accept, non service provisions kick in, not for low wage workers, but for somebody making, let's say, $75,000 a year. And then once you got to 100, you could have a non compete, 107, you could have a non compete, but you had to pay the person 50% of their salary so that when they sat down, you were not impoverishing them or some other percentage. And then over $250,000 a year, you would be permitted to have any restrictive covenant and not pay the individual. The idea being that their salary was such that They should have understood that they weren't going to be allowed to go and compete thereafter.
0: Well, I think there are a lot of ways that you could take this bill. If you really view non-competes as a compelling problem and you want to address or limit them uh, with some work, you can have a bill that does that. But this one seems a very blunt instrument for the project.
1: So poorly designed that it must have been designed to fail. This is the finest lead airplane I've ever seen.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thanks for the invite, Rich. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers, we do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tarterkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.